Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Now on Food FM, you're listening to Bread and Butter with Caroline Kenyon. Caroline and her guests make sense of the world through food, from politics to farming, making and cooking. Online, on smart speakers and on Listen Again, this is Food FM. Hello, I'm Caroline Kenyon and it's my absolutely enormous pleasure to welcome to Bread and Butter today, Ian McMillan, much loved, hugely admired, poet, thinker, Yorkshireman, Ian. Welcome to Bread and Butter. Thank you so much for asking me. And you know, bread and butter, indeed, both those things are two of my favourite things. I popped into my mother-in-law's yesterday and she was just finishing her breakfast and she was having bread and butter and a banana. I thought, well, that's the thing. Because, of course, people of that age, they always gave you things with bread and butter, didn't they? Like my mother would say, Absolutely. Do you want an apple? Yes. All right. Have an, here's an apple with some bread and butter. <laughs> For some reason. I don't know why. So it's a great title. But it I'm must sure. be butter. Yeah, it's got to be butter. It can't be. I mean, I, I'm a big fan of, uh, I shouldn't say this, but I like lard and dripping. There was, a, there was a lady recently in our local paper. She was called Bet- Betty Trout. And she was 100 years old. And she said that she was 100 because she had bread and dripping every day. So I thought, well, I'll give it a go. Absolutely. So how many more years have you got to go there, I'm 66. So I've got three another, more decades. another three decades of eating bread and dripping every day. Starting today, then you'll interview me Fantastic. again when I'm 100 and I'll put it down to that. Should we do it? Should we do a check-in every decade yes. and see how you're getting on? Let's do that. And I'll, I'll because the bread and dripping is not that healthy, really, I'll be getting bigger and bigger. So I'll be like, I'll be like a Zeppelin by the time you interview me when I'm 96. <laughs> Thinking about you and your uh, lard fueled ambition to reach your century, Ian, it'd be lovely to hear your food stories and memories. I mean, I know that, that being a Yorkshireman is so central to your sense of identity. And living in the adjacent county of Lincolnshire, which is my, my home county by adoption, I do really understand that thing about place and food. So, Tell us a little bit about, you know, growing up, what food meant to you as a family, the role that it played. In a sense, I've got a dual identity because although my mother is from the next village to where I live, my dad was a Scotsman. And so my dad, my mother and dad met as pen pals in the war. So my dad was in the Navy, my mother was in the WAFs, and they met as pen pals. So we ended up living in Darfield, the village in Yorkshire where I still live. And so I had this dual food identity where my me, me dad, he was a big porridge fan. He loved porridge. He was a porridge fan. But he did that interesting Lowland Scots thing of putting salt on his porridge. So I do remember that vividly, that he would have this massive steaming bowl of porridge with salt in it. And then as he got older, he began to change. And he, he had this weird kind of, I don't know what it would be, like a kind of enlightenment to kind of, but I'm, I'm describing it badly because it was the opposite way in a sense because he went off the porridge and then started having bacon and egg every day for his breakfast, which possibly 
isn't as healthy as porridge. And I remember it was a kind of, it was like a minimalist bacon and egg thing. When he left the Navy, he went to work in an office in Sheffield. And so for the first few years, he had this salty porridge. Then somebody must have told him salt's no good for you. So then he started eating this minimalist bacon and egg with one rasher of bacon. It was like an Andy Warhol print. It was beautiful. There was one rasher of bacon and a fried egg and a slice of bread. And he'd have that every day. And so he'd also tell you what he was doing. He, and I think that's one of the reasons I'm a storyteller, because he would get up very early and go, I'm just getting up, just getting out of bed, just getting up now. You'd hear him going down the stairs, just going down the stairs now. Just He's telling me mother and me and my brother, just down the stairs. You'd hear him shout from downstairs, just making the bacon and the eggs. They'd have this wonderful <laughs> uh, soundtrack to the morning of his bacon and egg frying. Meanwhile, my mother, being from Yorkshire, was a big fan of the Yorkshire pudding. The Yorkshire pudding, that almost sacred, sublime, transcendent dish that in the end is just a simple thing with flour and eggs and milk. But my dual heritage means that when I'm cooking, making the Yorkshire puddings, I'm kind of doing what my dad did. I go, well, I'm just making the Yorkshires now. I'm just about to start making the Yorkshires. Here I am making the Yorkshires. And my dad, he's kind of, my late dad, he's kind of looking over my shoulder, over one shoulder, going, that's right, Ian, tell him what you're doing. And my late mother is looking over my shoulder, making, saying things like, make sure, you, make sure you do it properly, make sure. And that's the thing about the Yorkshire pudding, to me, that it is a piece of intangible heritage. In the way that UNESCO have these intangible heritage things, where, for example, uh, the five-course lunch eaten at home in France is now a piece of intangible heritage because it's dying out. I think the making of the Yorkshire pudding, the having of the Yorkshire pudding as a starter when you're having your Sunday dinner or lunch should be part of intangible heritage. I put this idea up, a radio idea. I said, look, let's go. Let's go to UNESCO. And I'll go and say, I demand. And they thought it was a terrible idea, which it probably was. So there was... That kind of thing. The other thing I remember about home, so we have the dual heritage. Uh, although my dad was never a Haggis fan, to be honest with you. There's also that thing where food is love. So the, the more you get on your plate, the more love is in that room, the more love is in that kitchen. I remember when my kids were little, we would go to my mother's, and I'm pointing now because she just lived across the road, and she'd do these enormous spreads every Saturday afternoon. So there'd be sausage rolls, there'd be pork pies from Potters, the local butcher where I still get them from, and they'd be cut up, and then she'd have what she called muesli squares, muesli squares from the local baker where I just popped in this morning. And they weren't muesli squares, they were breeze blocks. They were these massive things. And she and you'd eat them, and they'd, and they'd go... And if, if you didn't eat them fast enough or with enough relish and joy, she'd go, don't you like them? Don't you like the muesli squares? Sausage rolls, massive groaning tables full of food. And and that's one of my earliest memories, really, of food, that it was food being loved. And it was also the fact that my mum and dad, my dad was born in 1919, my mum was born in 1924, so they had memories of poverty and, you know, not having enough food. So when you do get lucky enough to have enough food, then fill the table up, put it on the table. Wonderful kind of things like celery in a jug, celery in a jug. Do you know, we still have that at my mother-in-law's on a Sunday. We go down to my mother-in-law's and we have celery in a jug. And a couple of years ago, one of my wife's sisters dropped <laughs> the jug and the jug broke, the hairloom broke. And there was a moment when this celery 
was scattered on the floor with the heirloom jug in shards. But luckily, my mother-in-law then opened a cupboard. She got another jug, just the same. So that was fine. So it was that, wasn't it? The idea that, that food is love and food is a way of, of showing love because we're not very loquacious in Yorkshire. I am, but most of us aren't. And so the idea of handing somebody a pork pie or proffering the celery jug is a way of saying, I love you. I love you and I value you. And here, have this. And it was always kind of simple food. We never tried anything fancy. My dad, I I found this the other day and then I lost it again. A picture of me, at a school picture that I drew when I was at junior school, of my dad bringing home two grouse that a fellow at work had given him. And my dad's carrying these two grouse. And my dad says, I'm, I'm good to do this. <laughs> my dad, because when he was, before he was in the Navy, he lived on a farm. And my dad plucking these grouse in the shed and making a lot of... And my mum going, how do you cook grouse? Is it, what do you do? And my dad's going, I don't know. I think you put it in a pan. And it was like this panic-induced thing. Where my dad, and then my dad said, I think they ended up cooking it. And my dad goes, be careful, because it might be full of shot. <laughs> and I remember me and my brother thinking that meant that somehow the grouse could actually shoot you, that somehow the grouse would get some kind of grouse-based revenge on us Yorkshiremen. Oh, dear. So that, that was, yeah, that was what it was. It was a lot of that, a lot of, a lot of food, a lot of food. That's such a wonderful introduction to uh, Ian McMillan, food person, <laughs> if that's the way to describe it and I love that uh, sense of place Mm. and of emotion that you've depicted it's Mm. really beautiful just um, going back to the Yorkshire pudding you just reminded me my father who was also born in 1919 he served um, during the second world war in India And I remember he said that you know a general came to inspect the uh, the menu. I think, as usual, the soldiers were complaining about the food. And he said, oh, look, roast beef and Yorkshire pudding, splendid. What are all the chaps complaining about? And, of course, the next day pudding was, you know, something with jam on. And it was the, the leftover Yorkshire pudding on which they'd smeared some jam. Yeah, that, that's the thing they do, isn't it? They often, you, I, I don't leave any. So, But they do say, if you do leave some, put some jam on it. And it is a funny thing that the Yorkshire pudding had as a starter is very much a symbol of, of poverty and place because the idea was that you have your Yorkshire pudding as a starter because you can't afford the meat, you know, and, and that was the idea that you'd fill up on the Yorkshire pudding. And when we have our Yorkshire pudding as a starter, my wife will say, there aren't many people up our street doing this. And it's true. There are fewer and fewer people mixing the Yorkshire pudding. I always mix it as early as I can. Perhaps we have the dinner. I still call it dinner. I can't bring myself to call it lunch. If I call it lunch, I have to put it in inverted commas. I'd put it air quotes. We're having our lunch. Oh, you're having your posh lunch. So I mix it about half past nine in the morning just to get it ready and just then to let it stand. And then the the kids arrive and my grandkids, my grandson Noah, the boy Noah, he loves loves the Yorkshire puddings. He absolutely loves them. If they have a, I think next week they've got an insert day and my daughter said, what do you want to do? He said, I want to go to granddad's and have Yorkshire puddings. Because that's his thing. Oh, good boy. Oh, definitely. Good boy. And then and then you leave them. You leave them for ages. And people say, what's your recipe? And I say, well, in the end, I think the recipe is kind of hope and tradition. And my mother, over that shoulder that I mentioned before, my mother's watching me when I'm cooking these Yorkshire puddings. So I've got no idea how much I'm putting in. I have no idea. I, people say, what, what measurement? I've got no idea. It's measured in time and, and space, like a kind of Doctor Who thing. So I'll just throw some flour in. And I get some eggs and I smash some eggs in. I often, and I think I'm doing this deliberately, you know, I often leave 
a bit of eggshell in. And then it's kind of, it's a bit like the shot in the grouse, you know, it's, there's a bit of eggshell to show that it's real. And then, then I mix them. And my dad, when he, he was a big Yorkshire pudding mixer, and like me, a big pinny wearer. I love wearing a pinny. My dad always had a pinny. I like a pinny. People bring me pinnies when they've been on their holidays. And I mix, I mix the Yorkshire puddings, and I, I try and mix them, I sing. So I'll sing something like Alone Again, Oh, by Love, one of my favourite songs. Well, and it's okay, well, I can be in love. At the same time, I'm mixing the Yorkshire pudding. And I think maybe maybe three or four renditions of Love by Alone Again, Alone Again, Oh, by Love is enough. And my dad was the same. He sang either The Old Rugged Cross, which is a terrible dirge, and he, and he, and he was like going against the Yorkshire puddings. So he was like, I'll dream of the old rugged grass. And he's mixing the Yorkshire puddings, but quite quickly. Or it, uh, his other favourite song was Donald Wears Your Trousers by Andy Stewart. So I'd just come down for the eyeless guy mixing the Yorkshire puddings. And so people say, how long do you mix them for? And I said, well, at least three alone again ours. Or, if you like, a couple of old rugged crosses. And they say, you're not being very scientific here. And I think, well, in the end, maybe science isn't the Yorkshire pudding. Because, as you know, the great thing about the Yorkshire pudding is that you will do exactly the same thing. You put the flour in the eggs, I put some pepper in, some milk, a bit of water. The oven will be the same temperature. You put them in for exactly the same time. The lard is hot and they come out differently. They come out, that's the great thing about them. The alchemy doesn't work sometimes. So they'll either rise like chef's hats or they'll sit there like beer mats. And you've gone, how, how on earth did that happen? I've done exactly the same thing. And that's the joy of them. And that's the, the antithesis of the joy when you buy the pre-prepared Yorkshire pudding. What a terrible thing they are. You know, I mean, you can understand why people buy them, I suppose, but they're always the same. And people say, that, the reason I like these pre-prepared Yorkshire puddings is they're always the same. And I said, well, that's like walking out the house and saying, at least I'll get the same sunset today as I got yesterday. He said, no, you don't. You want them to be different. And sometimes they rise. Me and my, uh, my grandson, the boy Noah, we like those bits that he calls stalks, where bits of stuff stick out the Yorkshire pudding, bits of batter. Or because you're too excited when you're putting the batter in, bits stick on the side of the, on the thing and you get these little bits of burnt Yorkshire pudding. Because to be frank, as a South Yorkshireman, I like them burnt. Like I like everything burnt. When I was in the bread shop earlier, people are going, have you got any burnt bread? No, I'm sorry, it's all gone. Because a South Yorkshire thing is, you like it well done. I love that. I love the kind of the the, the magic of uncertainty, mm. very much part of the excitement and the anticipation of how it's going to emerge from the oven. I think so, because with food, for me, so much of it is excitement and uncertainty. Even with very simple things like the Yorkshire pudding where you think, well, it should come out the same as last week, and it would if you bought a fake one. But it's different. And then, and then at the moment of the moment of getting it out of the oven, it's just a thing, because I wrote a poem about it, which I'll read you later on, and, the, and, and for me, that moment is when you open it up, and it's so hot, and you always forget, and this, this tidal wave of heat hits you, and you're looking, and the Yorkshire puddings are there, and you get them out, and it's, to me, it's, that, it's like Christmas morning, when all the presents are wrapped up, and that moment of seeing the presents wrapped up is as good as opening the presents. And the moment of seeing the Yorkshire puddings in the oven is as good as eating the Yorkshire puddings. Because you go, look, here we are again. They're different to last week. They're different to the week. The, oh, yes, it is. It's excitement. And also that, that, that means that when they're not as good as you thought they'd be, it doesn't matter. Because you go, wow, what excitement, what anticipation I had. Oh, they're not very good. 
doesn't matter, you know, because the moment of anticipation is the thing. It's like it's like when you I decided the other day. I'm I'm generally healthy. I try to be healthy, but I said the other day to my wife, once a month, I'm going to have a bacon sandwich on a Saturday morning for my breakfast. So I went out and bought some white tea cakes oh, and some bacon. I know you shouldn't, but and I made this bacon sandwich and I enjoyed it. But I've got to tell you that the week's anticipation before the bacon sandwich was just as good, if not better. So the actual, that's the great thing about food, isn't it? That food is like when you go to a gig or when you go and see a film or when you go and see a play or when you open a book, you think, God, this book's going to be good. I can't wait to read this book. And the book's usually good. But just those days of anticipating this being sunny, I did enjoy it. I did enjoy it, but I didn't quite enjoy it as looking forward to it. Isn't that the great thing about food? That it's not just the moment of the eating. It's the time before the eating, then the eating, then the time after the eating. So it doesn't matter if it doesn't take you long to eat it because it's taking you ages to think about it. No, I'm with you there, definitely. But just just kind of moving on a little bit, Ian, mm. from your, dare I say it, slightly carb-heavy uh, childhood. Yes, it was a bit, um, I'm afraid. That's why I used to be, um, I used to be a bit So when you went away to university and then <laughs> yeah. presumably started travelling and so on, yeah. how did you find it being introduced to, to novel and exotic foods? I remember um, I, I made a television series years ago when I went to Mexico. For York, I was Yorkshire Television's investigative poet. And I used to go out and I used to make little programmes and I'd do a little poem at the end. And I used to sign off at the end, Yorkshire Television, investigative poet. And I was invited by the British Council to go to Mexico to read my poems to baffled Mexicans. And I said to Yorkshire Television, let's just go, me and my mate, the director, let's hire a local crew and make some documentaries about Mexico, Mexican food. We said, all right, let's do that. So that's that was my first big introduction because... I went to North Staffordshire Polytechnic, which in the end turned out to be a bit like Barnsley, except they had Staffordshire oatcakes, not Yorkshire puddings. And the Staffordshire oatcake is a great, great thing in itself. It's a wonderful piece of local food. So my, my most exotic thing was not long after uni, I went to uh, college, Polytechnic it was. I went to uh, Mexico and they said, right, you're going to make these, you're going to do a series here called Emmett Miller's Mexican Guide to Mexican Cooking. And they, we had a little... A waiter, this tiny little waiter, it was called Omar, and he said, and the idea was that he'd make some stuff and I'd eat it, and then I'd make some considered response to it. And the first one was grasshoppers. So, right, we've got some grasshoppers. Grasshoppers are a great delicacy, as you know, in Mexico. And I had to go, and he gave me these grasshoppers. <laughs> and I must admit, I was nervous at the grasshopper. And I had to go, and I had to go, hmm, grasshoppers. And I had to go, hmm, they're great. And to be frank, they weren't. They, were, they didn't actually taste of anything. It was like eating matchsticks. To be honest with you, I thought they'd taste of grasshopper. So that that on that trip, I had grasshoppers, I had cactus, I had that thing called chocolate chicken, which was amazing, where they cook a chicken in chocolate, and it's two different flavours. And at the time, I thought, all right, this is exciting. I will, I'll try and eat lots of different things because I enjoyed the grasshoppers more than I thought I would. On the other hand, they stayed exotic. And that's one of the problems, isn't it? It's like when you read a poem that's been translated from the French, which I do, I read a lot of translated stuff. And in the end, you think, am I reading just, am I just being excited by the fizz of so-called exoticism? Am I othering the poem? Am I othering this everyday event by eating grasshoppers and saying, oh, aren't they exotic? No, they're not if you live in Oaxaca 
They're just like a Yorkshire pudding if you live in Oaxaca. So I've always been nervous of kind of exoticizing and othering that kind of thing. I remember years and years ago, I was rung up by a newspaper who said, we've discovered a chef at a very posh restaurant in London is from Barnsley. So we'd like you and your mate to go down, eat the food, then talk to him about coming, coming from Barnsley. I said, all right. I went to this very posh restaurant, me and my mate Keith, the taxi driver, and there were 10 courses. And this was quite a while, and it would have cost 200 quid if we'd have had it. And it was fantastic, fantastic food. But then this wonderfully farcical thing happened at the end when I said, and now I'm going to, the, the photographer d- turned up. I said, right, I'm going to interview the man now from Barnsley. They said, it's his day off. He's not here. I said, oh, I'm supposed to interview him. They said, well, he lives around the corner. We'll tell him to come in. I said, all right. I said, put him, time to put his whites on and I'll interview him. We'll have a photo opportunity. And he turned up this fella. I said, what's your memories of Barnsley? He said, none. Because I was only born there because my parents were passing through and I happened to be born in the hospital. I was there for about six hours. I said, have you any memories of food in Barnsley? He said, no, just my mother's breast. I said, well, and then I said, have you been back to Barnsley? He went, no. I said, have you got any plans to visit Barnsley? No. I said, I meant to write 800 words about you coming from Barnsley. So I don't know what that story's about, really, except that maybe it's another story about anticipation. I had to make some stuff up. I said, look, I, should, I said, what if I said that uh, an Albertus pork pie was just as good as the food we just had? He said, yeah, you can say that if you want. But since then, thinking about my carb-heavy diet, these days I eat very healthily, and my main thing is apples. I love apples. This year, as you know, has been a great year for apples. Wayside apples, feral apples, I call them. From my street, walking up the hill towards Barsley, so many different apple trees. And I pick them and I stew them, mainly, put them on my porridge. My mother-in-law, uh, she makes the most wonderful apple pies, apple crumbles, egg custards. bit younger than my mother, but that same generation, more or less. And we'll be popping down there later on and she'll have made a crumble and she'll say, do you fancy this crumble? But she... She has a caravan at Cleethorpes and she will find these feral apple trees and just spend the whole summer with her walking stick and a bag. Always take a bread bag with her, she says, and just fill it. And she found, to her great joy and delight this year, a tree she hadn't seen before or perhaps had been there but hadn't given fruit. And we spent ages. And that, that's what I love about the, the humble apple, as people call it, that there are so many varieties that you can eat it. I always eat one on my early straw one that's grown on our tree. And then I can, I can put the stewed ones on my porridge in the morning. And then I can go down to my mother-in-law's and have a bit of her apple crumble. My porridge in the morning is like a kind of festival. Does your porridge have sugar in it? No. Or are you like your father and it has salt no, or I, nothing? I, I, my porridge is just, it's just full of fruit, to be honest with you. Because what I try and do is I use the porridge as a base. And on top of the porridge, I'll put stewed apples. Then I'll put nuts. I love nuts. Then I'll put some prunes. Then I'll put some apricots. Then I'll put some grapes. Then I'll slice a banana. Then I'll put some dates. And it's just building up into this harvest festival. And at the bottom, it's marvellous. It so just the, it, the porridge is really just an excuse. It is. And in the end, I could just have a fruit salad for my breakfast. But I think the porridge is there. And then, this time of year, what I like to do is put a bit of cinnamon on it. Because that, to me, cinnamon is the scent of the approach to Christmas, and so and and that's and I, I love I love my porridge in the morning. My wife actually turned me on to it. I used to be a chap who had uh, bran flakes and all bran because I was told it was healthy. But then, in fact, 
as we know, they're full of sugar, whereas porridge ain't got a lot of sugar in it. So when I'm, I, I have this massive, massive bowl of porridge. And my wife sometimes says things like, well, that's a mighty bowl of porridge, in a sort of critical way, meaning there's too much porridge in that bowl. But because I walk around such a lot, you know, and I try and, I try and be healthy and walk, I think I'm walking the porridge off. And then I, every so often I have this fantasy where I'm going to try something different on top of the porridge that nobody's ever done before. So, you know, I might put a fried egg on top or I might put something ridiculous like some Haribo's in the porridge because I had this sense that the, the porridge could be like something that could hold anything. Like Walt Whitman, I contain multitudes. The idea the porridge could contain anything you want. So you could just put a sausage in the porridge, that kind of thing, you know, that anything, anything could go into the porridge. So the porridge could be like, it could be like the, mag the magic porridge pot, in fact. You know, so that anything could come out of the magic porridge pot is my theory. <laughs> that, that theory yes. just won't stand up, will it? But it's worth a try. I'll process that one. I think I departed uh, at the point where you mentioned Haribo's because I have to say yeah. that's not high on my list of favourite foods. But you talked about cinnamon and the smell mm. of Christmas and I completely understand what you're saying. So tell me about how food plays out in the Macmillan household for Christmas. Will there be Yorkshire pudding? That's the big debate. That is the huge debate. Over the pandemic, of course, we weren't allowed all the family, but this year I think all the family will be there. And I think, as I remember, the Christmas before the pandemic, my grandson ordered Yorkshire puddings. He said, I think we should have Yorkshire puddings. And it is a big debate, you know, because there's often not room on the table for the Yorkshire puddings. But then if you don't have the Yorkshire puddings, is it a proper dinner? I don't know. So I think we might have Yorkshire puddings. We might. I like turkey. I do like turkey. I love sprouts. I, I, I can't stand this kind Me of food. Me too. This, this, it's like there's a kind of full performative thing about, oh, sprouts, I hate sprouts. How can you not like sprouts? People say, oh, I'll force one down at Christmas. You say, well, give me the rest. I think sprouts are great. Aesthetically, they look so wonderful. They're like a piece of sculpture, is a sprout, especially when you get them off the stick. And then the taste of them, I like them raw. I love a raw sprout. Raw. When I'm, cook when I'm getting the sprouts ready, it's kind of get them ready, eat one, get them ready, eat one. Roast potatoes, pigs in blankets, that thing that um, you used to be able to find quite a bit of, but you can't find so much now, which is the bacon wrapped around the cheese that they used to do at the local co-op, but they don't do anymore. And I've tried making my own, but it's just a disaster. Yeah, it's nice. You get bacon wrapped around cheese, and they used to do it at the co-op and maybe another couple of supermarkets and places. But And that's a nice one. It all melts. And, and the sausage meat, sausage meat from my local butchers, Potters, which is the best butcher. They're pork pies to die for. There's, there's a big debate around here in Barnsley. As I said the words Potter's Pork Pies, there's a, there's a howling pitchforked mob gathering outside saying the words Percy Turner's. Because around here, the big debate is Percy Turner's Pork Pies versus Potter's Pork Pies. Percy Turner makes his pork pies in the wonderfully named village of Jump near Barnsley. Is this bus going to jump? Yes, hold it down, I'm getting on. There really is a village called Jump and he makes these pork pies, which are nice, but I do prefer the Potter's, the, the, the mixture of jelly to crust to meat is just right. I was once wonderfully paid by the BBC to make a series about pork pies and I wanted to call it Crust Almighty but because it went out in the in a Sunday afternoon we weren't allowed so we had to call it Away to All the Pies and I, I, I sampled all these great pies like the Melton Mowbray pork pie which to be honest with you I don't like as much as the Yorkshire pork pie because I, don't, I think the crust is a little greasy. Scotch, the Scotch pie which is a weird thing isn't it? The Scotch pie. Macaroni pie. That's an odd thing. I had to go into Dundee, and in Dundee they call it a pear. 
And instead of saying, I'll have a pear, I'll have a pie and an onion one as well, I had to go, I'll have a pear and an onion, yin and ya, is what you meant to say. And I was fitted with a hidden microphone. And I had to go into this pie shop and go, I'll have a pear and an onion, yin and ya. And the man went, you're no from Dundee. I said, no, I'm not. So I had that pie, I had pie and mash in the East End. Then I had this wonderful rediscovery of a pie from Berwick in uh, Suffolk, that Berwick, called the, the, no, Sussex, Berwick in Sussex, called the Sussex Churdle. It was a lost pie that had recently been rediscovered. And it was almost like a pasty. And it had liver in it and apple. It was the most amazing thing. But anyway, so at Christmas, there'll be pork pies. Not, not with the Christmas dinner, but there'll be pork pies later on. And the sausage meat, the sausage meat from Potters. There's this massive spread. As I'm eating it, I know that the kids and the grandkids would rather have the pigs in blankets and the sausage meat than the turkey and the veg. You know, but because they, that's what they love. And it is, my, my daughter, my eldest daughter, Noah's mum will say, this is my favourite dinner of the year. You know, and it really is. And there was that horrible period, weren't there, when we couldn't meet up. You know, me and, me and my wife had to have this, because we normally have, have a Christmas Eve spread. They call it a fuddle, a fuddle in Yorkshire where people come along. We knew it was like that, couldn't have that. We had to meet up with my son and his partner in a local park and exchange gifts. You know, he thought, God, this, this isn't right. You know, passing over a pork pie. So yes, Christmas at our house, and then so we have that. We have the massive Christmas dinner. We then go down to my mother-in-law's at what feels like half an hour later, and she's made this huge spread because food is love. And there'll be there'll be a piece of turkey, there'll be ham that she's cooked herself. There'll be cooked down. There'll be even more pork pies. There'll be celery in a jug. She makes the greatest trifles you've ever seen. She makes these trifles. When I go down to my mother-in-law's this afternoon. You're walking, it'd be like a scene from some kind of science fiction film because there'll be a big bowl with a dozen eggs in it because she's cracked the eggs ready for a Christmas pudding. Christmas uh, cake, I mean. So there'll be, be last year's Christmas cake because she likes to keep it. So my mother-in-law's on Christmas Day night, as they call it. There'll be more turkey, there'll be ham. There'll be, oh dear. And you go, I couldn't possibly. But then somehow you become somebody else, don't you? You are full to the top, as my grandson will say. But you somehow get more... Oh dear, yes. So Christmas, Christmas is all about food for me. I, t I do try and eat healthily most of the time, but then there isn't actually much point in it at Christmas. I don't think because you feel a bit of a curmudgeon. If you go, no, no, I'll not have that. I'll, I'll, I'll eschew that that last bit of pork pie. And also, I think it's just that food is love thing. That when there is too much, you feel lucky, don't you? Because so many people are not going to have enough, and so many people are going to suffer, and yet you feel lucky because. You've left a bit, you know, so... And then January, you won't ever eat another pot pie again. You promise yourself until you go up to the butchers. Yes, and your self-restraint is wafer thin. Yeah, it is. I mean, I'm, I'm not only quite good at deferred gratification and self-restraint, but at Christmas, it must be the centre cinnamon. It must do something to your brain. <laughs> Probably so. I love I love what you've said about food is love, um, Ian, and I feel completely the same. I mean, my family we are we are we're, we're very different and united by food and by love, mm. and it's yeah. such a special thing. You yeah. mentioned earlier that you have a poem about Yorkshire. About Yorkshire. Yes, I'd love it if you would read All that right. to us because we're just coming to the end of our time. So sure. let's end on a last hurrah for the Yorkshire pudding. It's just a list of how to make Yorkshire puddings for those who can't. And it's just a, it's a very personal poem, I guess. 
Yorkshire pudding rules, it's called. The tin must not gleam, must never be new. If there's dried sweat somewhere in its metal, it must be your mother's. The flower must be strong and white as the face of Uncle Jack when he came back from the desert. The eggs must come from an allotment. The allotment must belong to your father-in-law. The eggs have to be brought with one swift movement over the bowl. If there's dried sweat somewhere in its pyrex, it must be your mother's. The milk must have been delivered by Colin Leach at 0430. The fork has to be an old one. The wrist must, simply must, ache after the mixing. The flour must introduce itself to the yolk of the egg. The egg has to be allowed to talk to the flour. The milk must dance with them both, foxtrot, then quickstep. The pepper must be scattered black on off-white. The oven must be hotter than ever. The lard has to come in a tight white pack. The lard must almost catch fire in the oven. The oven door must open and you must shout, Jesus Christ, as the heat smacks you in the chops. Follow these rules and your puddings will rise to heaven and far beyond. <laughs> that was wonderful. Thank you. It's very Thank touching. You. That Thank was you. really moving. There's so much history and reference in that. Thank you. Ian, I have absolutely loved our conversation. Thank so you. So have I. Thank you. Thank you. And wishing you and your family a very blessed and wonderful Christmas together. Yes, and to you. Thank you. You're listening to Bread and Butter with Caroline Kenyon. To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com. 